If acceptance is a key to serenity, what do you do about unacceptable behavior and violence? Welcome to episode 356 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Debbie, Cynthia, Melanie, Cheryl, Laura, and Marilyn. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Debbie, Cynthia, Melanie, Cheryl, Laura, and Marilyn for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I will be your host today. Joining me today is Kathy. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Kathy. You picked a reading for us to open with. Do you want to read that for us? Sure. So I chose Courage to Change, December 26th. And here it goes. Here's one of the most useful lessons I've learned in Al-Anon. If I don't want to be a doormat, I have to get up off the floor. In other words, although I can't control what other people say, do, or think, I am responsible for my choices. Looking back, I can accept that plenty of unacceptable behavior was directed at me, but I was the one who sat and took it and often came back for more. I was a willing participant in a dance that required two partners. I felt like a victim, but in many ways, I was a volunteer. Today, as a result of my recovery in Al-Anon, I know that I am not helpless. I have choices. When I get that old feeling that tells me I'm a victim, I can regard it as a red flag a warning that I may be participating with my thoughts or my actions in something that is not in my best interest. I can resist the temptation to blame others and look to my own involvement instead. That's where I can make changes. And today's reminder, it can be very empowering to take responsibility for my own choices. I will act in my own best interest today. I would do well to accept the challenge to look to my own recovery before I spend any more of my precious life Wishing the Alcoholic Would Change, and that's a quote from Living with Sobriety. You wrote to me not very long ago, I think, and said you'd like to talk about this topic. What prompted you to write? An Al-Anon friend told me that there was a meeting that I go to occasionally and that they needed leaders, and they also needed speaker leaders. And I've been in Al-Anon for four years. Actually, this month is my four-year birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. I really wanted to talk about unacceptable behavior in that meeting. And I thought, I haven't been with the program long enough to do a speaker lead. I'm not ready. I'm only on step four. But my higher power was just, I kept getting all these signs. It needs to be a speaker meeting. You need to talk about this topic. And so I did. And it went really well. And right after that, that's when I wrote the letter to you and just felt like my higher power was just letting me know that it's important to share this because I went through something that was really hard and it was really confusing in the middle of it. And I just want to help others who are going through that help to recognize those signs because that was really the start of my own recovery. So I'm going to let you do most of the talking today because I really don't have experience on the abuse and violence side of the topic. An unacceptable behavior question, I think, if we broaden it out to other forms of unacceptable behavior, I think we probably have all been in 
in situations where we're like, this is not right. What, what do I do about this? And now how do I live the principles of my recovery and do something about this? Let's start with the definition of unacceptable behavior. I looked up a few references and one is any conduct that is unreasonable, regardless of the level of stress, frustration, or anger experienced because it compromises health, safety, or security. And that's from lawinsider.com. And then another definition is from Cambridge Dictionary, which is unacceptable, is too bad to be accepted, approved of, or allowed to continue. Yeah. As I've gone through my journey, so I realized that the emotional abuse that I went through started with unacceptable behavior that I allowed. And I, for many reasons, which I will talk about later, I wasn't in Al-Anon and I didn't understand and I didn't see any of it. So it just continued because I allowed it to continue. Yeah. I can't speak for you, but I know that one of my character traits is that I want to please people. I'm sure that there have been times when I have gone against my wishes, maybe against sometimes my better judgment, because I wanted to please another person. And and I think that may be the beginning of that slope. Yeah, it was for me, along with, and I've learned through my four step, along with me having my own sense of worth defined outside of myself mm-hmm. from my uh, childhood. It was very chaotic. I definitely have the family disease of alcoholism in my family of origin. And I got my self-worth from my mom. I was the parentized oldest kid of six. It was my job to take care of her and to take care of my siblings. And when she gave me praise, that's how I felt good. So I, I never learned how to until Al-Anon, as I'm continuing to now I have a mantra that I say to myself when I catch myself starting to see those patterns, I define my own self-worth. And I say that to myself multiple times sometimes, but it's part of the confusion because when I was in my marriage, he became my higher power and he kept changing the rules. Mm. And I didn't understand that my self-worth was coming from him. I felt like I was a very strong person, but he kept changing the rules. And so it was so confusing. It was like li- living in a like a circus funhouse with those crazy mirrors. Nothing quite made sense. I was trying to hang on to something you said back there, the mantra. Can you say that again? Yeah, I define my own self-worth. That feels like a tool. Yes. For me, it's a very important tool. Good. I I love getting into not just the problem, but also some of the solution. Because if you just talk about the problem, it feels so overwhelming and hopeless. (laughs) You also have here a somewhat lengthy definition (laughs) of domestic violence. Yeah, a lot of people and it was true of me until I learned about what was going on. Domestic violence means that someone's getting hit or push, or there's something physical. But that's not actually the case. Domestic violence starts much sooner than that actual physical violence. So domestic violence is defined as a pattern of behaviors used by one partner to maintain power and control over another partner in an intimate relationship. It includes behaviors that physically harm, intimidate, manipulate, or control a partner, or otherwise force them to behave in ways they don't want to, including through physical violence, threats, emotional abuse, or financial control. Oftentimes, multiple forms of abuse are present at the same time. And it's really important, and it was important for me to understand what to look for. 
because through all of this, it just sounds like craziness, but it just speaks to where I was, even when it got to the lowest of the low point and finally woke me up, like just ripped the denial right off of me. My question that I asked for weeks to professionals was, am I in an abusive relationship? And of course, the answer was yes. But my self-esteem was so low. I was so confused. I was deep in that house of circus fun mirrors. Mm. Nothing made sense to me at all. It was really, it was such a confusing time. I'm a smart person. I put myself through school. I have a technical degree, but it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. You know what I'm connecting it with? I'm connecting it with the relationship that I had with my alcoholic and with her alcoholism of not seeing it. There was a period of time that was not short, like Mm -hmm. months or maybe more than a year where she was saying, I'm an alcoholic. And I was saying, no, you're not. Okay. The blindness of, to some extent, not seeing the thing I want to see, but also, as you said, you said you were asking professionals, am I in an abusive relationship? And I needed, I think, that validation from professionals that, yeah, this is alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Because, I don't know, because. I can't go to because. I just know what I felt. And yet, just as you have this list of different behaviors, and I think about the different behaviors that I hear about people's loved ones who are alcoholic and, and all the different behaviors that are alcoholism, and that I had this picture of alcoholism which was a very narrow picture to completely simplify it and make a stereotype out of it. It is the bum with a 40 ouncer and a paper bag sitting on the railroad tracks. Okay. That that's the picture of alcoholism that I had. And the behavior of my loved one did not fit that picture. And, and it sounds like to some extent you didn't see the behavior that was happening in your relationship, at least for a long time as, as abusive, as violent. For sure. It was confusing. And I kept asking professionals. And I didn't know how to describe it in a way that made sense to them. And it was never identified, which just kept increasing the confusion. Yes, (laughs) I could see that. Yeah, let me give some examples of the types of abuse, because I think that's powerful. And I've heard from people that that really helps them. Yeah. So some examples of abuse that are part of domestic violence include physically hurting you, your children, or pets, reckless driving, abandoning you in unfamiliar places, trying to isolate you from family and friends, financial control, humiliating comments, damaging of belongings, throwing things, punching walls, kicking doors, threats of violence, and gaslighting, which is pretending not to understand or refusing to listen to you or questioning your recollection of facts, events, or sources, trivializing your needs or feelings, or denying previous statements or promises, and verbal abuse. So many of these items sound and feel small, taken just one at a time, and that's part of the insidiousness of the whole thing. They're so easy to trivialize, minimize, and overlook, but taken together, they slowly over time cause a person to question their own feelings, instincts, and sanity, which gives the abusive partner a lot of power. And that's absolutely what. And uh, you've got the frog analogy here, you know? Yeah. 
which is really helpful. And actually that was shared with me by a professional who has a lot of experience with domestic violence. People equate domestic violence to cooking frog's legs. And to cook frog's legs, you put a frog that's alive in a pot of cool water on the stove over low heat. And the heat increases at such a slow pace that the frog doesn't even notice. He could jump right out of the pot, but he never does. And then the frog died. Yeah. And again, I know for me, the alcoholism also had that gradual, every little step was a little bit worse than the step before. And it's not until you get, and in, in my case, get to the, oh my God point, which is like when the water's about to boil or something. And then looking back and saying, how did I get here? Yes, for sure. So do you want to tell your story? For me personally, going through that list of of the behaviors of domestic violence, I experienced many types of gaslighting that started very early in our marriage, including attempted control of my friends, financial control, reckless driving, abandoning me and my child in unfamiliar places, and sometimes I didn't even have my wallet with me, mean comments for 13 years before I finally saw through the denial and confusion. Mm-hmm. And part of the additional confusion in this is that through those low points, there were really good times. It's like the the OJ Simpson thing. You'd see when all that was going on, you'd see Nicole Kidman with the picture of her black eye. And then you'd hear this, but she went back. And the people would, but she went back. It must not have been that bad, but she went back. And it's like that it's part of the cycle. There's these really, sometimes really difficult things. And sometimes just like gradual, small, mean things like we were talking about. Mm-hmm. But then it'd be periods of when it's really good and it all goes away. And that just totally feeds into the denial as well and thinking, well, okay, finally he figured it out. Finally, he's not going to do it anymore. And that didn't happen, I guess. No, it it absolutely didn't. No. One really scary part of the whole thing is there was a lot of fear, even though for me, it was mostly emotional and verbal abuse, but there was a lot of fear involved in it. And two different times in those later years of abuse, I had this overwhelming intuition that I was going to be murdered that night by my husband. And both of those times had been quiet days. There was no raging and nothing notable happened. Both times I was getting ready for bed and my husband was watching TV downstairs and my daughter was asleep. And I just had this overwhelming feeling that if I went to sleep, I wasn't going to be alive anymore. And I remember thinking, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go wake up my daughter and take her to get in the car and go drive away? And of course, he will see me holding my daughter. And what's that going to lead to? Because I would have had to walk by him. And it just felt like it was so confusing and overwhelming. And both times I went to sleep and nothing happened that I'm aware of. But yeah, just so confusing and scary. (laughs) That's just really scary. It was very scary. And to get to the point of seeing through my denial, it took my lowest point which was having my husband put his fist one inch away from my face when he was raging and driving. We were driving home from a five-day vacation at a large rental beach house with two friends and their families to celebrate my 50th birthday. It was a great weekend. And thats it's so unpredictable. You never knew Hmm. when it was going to come up. Mm -hmm. And that fist literally woke me up. It was like the Matrix movie where the main character like gets unplugged from the Matrix. That's when... My denial got ripped away from me. And I was like, finally, I saw like the real world. Oh my God, really? Really? 
So that's pretty unacceptable. For sure. <laughs> and at this point, you were still not in any recovery program. No. Mm -mm. That came later. Yes. And no, yeah, I had been to many therapists growing up. Uh, yeah. And no one, I had never heard of Al-Anon. Yeah. Couples therapists, individual therapists. No one ever mentioned it. I wasn't aware. So that was your wake up about the abusive relationship you were in. What brought you to Eleanor? Are we at that point in the story yet? Almost. Not quite. Okay. Yeah. So talking about Eleanor and, and the disease of alcoholism. So there's no question that disease is in my family of origin. For my husband, I do believe that he's a high functioning alcoholic but he would certainly not self-identify and he's never been in treatment. He drank wine and often would binge drink. I believe his dad was an alcoholic and his mom was definitely an untreated Al-Anon who raged. Hmm. So I'm the oldest of six kids, the parentized kid. I believe that my mom was an alcoholic, but she certainly would not self-identify that way. And I don't remember her drinking before I was a teenager. She definitely struggled with depression. My dad had a good professional job, but my parents were not good at managing money. Our home was often in chaos. My mom kicked my dad out of the house when I was 16 by throwing his things out on the lawn. And after that, our family plunged into poverty. She did get a couple jobs and she was doing good for a while. And then she just let it go. So I moved out of the house at 19 and I put myself through college. My goal was to be financially stable and I was very driven to do that. I was not going to be like my parents. I chose a technical degree and a job in a stable industry. I got married at 27 and divorced at 31. I dated my now almost ex for four and a half years before I got married again because I wanted to be sure that, <laughs> that it was going to be okay. That didn't work. Yeah, I just didn't want to get divorced again. It's a failure. Soon after we got married, the gaslighting and verbal abuse began, which is emotional abuse. I was trying to get pregnant and I had several miscarriages and with fertility about three years after our marriage, my daughter was born when I was 40. I quit my job to raise my daughter. After all those miscarriages, I just couldn't bring myself to hand her over to daycare eight hours a day and quitting my job made me financially vulnerable and more dependent on him. And the abuse increased. I could literally feel the heat of it increase. I did my best to ignore it and to focus on my daughter and try to protect her in my own little bubble of love, which, you know, at the moment, at the time I felt like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get it. How old is she now? She's just turned 17. And, and there was, there was a point for a long time when she was young, it was always directed at me and not at her. But then when she was around eight years old, it was like right after her birthday when the first, I remember it so clearly. It really scared me that his anger turned towards her as well. She had left her birthday gifts. So we had this thing where she could open so many birthday presents and then she had to write thank you cards mm -hmm. and then it opens more. And so she just took her time. She was an only child. She didn't have any competition. So there were still some of her gifts that were still out and they weren't away. And he became rageful that night. I was putting my daughter to bed and we could hear him stomping and making the sounds that he would make. And he popped all the balloons. You could hear it one at a time. And here's my little eight-year-old daughter listening to this. He was 
saying things and throwing things. And he threw a gift that she had that was in one of those really sealed clamshells that almost takes a yes. act of Congress to get it open. Yes. He threw it so hard. Uh, he threw it so hard that it literally popped the clamshell open. So that speaks to the force. Yeah. I took pictures of it, actually, because I felt like it was important to document. So it was turned to her as well. Early on in the abuse, he was actually pretty successful in isolating me and pushing my friends away and would be mean and rude to them. But then later on, I recognized that friends were really important for me and to have that network. So I was honest with them about what was going on and they knew about the situation and they didn't let him bother them. They weren't intimidated by him. We went to different couples counselors. I read books and I really felt like no marriage is perfect. And maybe this is just like part of it is patience and compassion and just trying to work through difficult times. Under that, there was this coercion going on to rip my self-esteem from me. And over time, it actually worked. I want to pause for a moment because I feel like what you just said is really important. Talking about compassion and understanding, because this is something that, again, I've heard in the rooms, in people's shares, like, when am I over-compassionate, over-understanding, and using that as a, a shield from seeing the truth, a shield from understanding that actually there is no excuse for what's happening. There is no understanding that says this is okay. And I think that's that's one of those hard balancing acts that my recovery asks of me. When do I have understanding and compassion? When do I say this is a disease and this behavior is a result of the disease? And therefore, I know it's not my loved one trying to hurt me. And when might I say, wait a minute? I've heard that question come up over and over. And each of us has our own answer. Like, where is that point? The answer that I might have for my life and my relationships is not necessarily the answer that somebody else has. And I love that about our program, that it lets us find where that point is for each of us. Trying to support us in seeing clearly so that we can actually find that point. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like the steps are an important part of allowing us to to look under the covers. That's what led me to realize that my own self-worth was defined by others and to start to unwind all those habits and patterns that I picked up and how it led me to this path and how I can do a better job of protecting myself and keep myself safe. So I knew something was wrong from the start of our marriage, but I always felt it as like a power struggle, like a really strong power struggle, actually. And I felt like I had some responsibility for that. I'm actually like a double Leo and a Chinese dragon from my you're into astrology or whatever. So that doormat reading at the beginning, I would never, ever have defined myself in that way, but it was me. I did those things too. Uh-huh. But so I definitely got wrapped up in and I'm the mother, right? Take, taking everyone's responsibility. That was part of it too. So he would gaslight, like, for example, tell me that something never happened when I was talking about something. 
And I, I'd be having this call. Oh, we did that. We did this. And he's, I don't know what you mean. That didn't happen. What do you mean? No, that didn't happen. Hmm. That's weird. Okay. And why would I ever think that, that he would lie? I never even considered it. So like just slowly I started questioning myself. He would withhold, which is not responding to me when I would bring up a subject or ask him something. He would just act like he couldn't hear me, like I didn't have a voice. He would walk out of the room in the middle of me talking about something. And over time, that kind of led to me feeling like less than. He would minimize my concern over many things by telling me that they weren't important or that I was being too sensitive. That was a common phrase. And that's actually a really common thing in abusive relationships. If anybody out there is hearing you're too sensitive, (laughs) that's a flag. He would break items that belonged to me or mistreat them, like throwing them. And some of these things I recognized as not healthy and I would fight against them and they would get better individually, but that was just all part of the fun house. So um, like for this particular one, like mistreating things, I finally mistreated his things one time in front of him and he reacted, what are you doing? I'm like, now you know what it feels like. And then also I finally, he was... Uh, definitely overmanaged our finances, micromanaged our finances. And I got to the point of saying, when something of mine breaks, I'm going to buy a new thing to replace it. And those two things finally stopped that behavior. It actually helped. <laughs> I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here and, and in my brain, I'm hearing, and how did that work for you? But in fact, in this case, it did make a little bit of a difference, but you, there was a but there at the end. I heard. Right. Coming. Yeah. I just, I couldn't, I didn't ha- yet have the ability to see the big picture. So I pushed against those small things and tried to the best of my ability to take care of myself. But I just, I couldn't see the big picture. He would often rage at completely unpredictable times. And I was very much walking on eggshells because you just never knew what would set him off. And so some of the examples of things that would set him off are dirty dishes on the kitchen counter when he got home from work, kids toys on the ground, something random that just didn't happen to be as he expected it to be. I tried to fight against the tendency of anxiety. And I tried to fight against the need for me to rush around and make everything perfect before he got home. But it just, it was definitely anxiety creating. And what did I quickly need to organize before he got home? And I really did try like not to set myself off, but just one more piece of the whole thing. I do want to talk about the finances. So he was very controlling with finances. He had a financial degree and he managed our money. He yelled at me about spending money on things that he didn't agree with. He would ask me to categorize my spending in our financial program. And it all felt really stressful. And towards the end, every time that I sat at our family computer to do financial things, I could literally hear static white noise in my head that would start out low and just get louder and louder to where like my brain just stopped And I couldn't concentrate. And years later, I learned that's called disassociation. That's a thing. It isn't. Yes. And I can't even tell you how it just continued to feed into the, oh, my God, what is going on with me? Yeah, (laughs) that would be scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my brain stopped working. Yeah. it's And I have a technical degree. I know how to do math. And I am just totally losing it. What is going, I'm completely losing who I am. What is going on? Yeah. And a therapist let me know that 
for disassociation that I should ground myself by grabbing onto a table and holding it firmly and close my eyes and take deep breaths. And that's a way to, it's actually a physical reaction. My brain really was trying to stop what I was doing to protect my body. So by doing those, taking those steps, I can settle my body down. Wow. That's, yeah. There's another tool. Exactly. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) I listened to a, a recovery podcast where the host has one of those little like desk bells that you tap it in and it mm-hmm. dings. And whenever he thinks somebody said something important, he goes <laughs> like this, this is where I would go ding. <laughs> yes. I listened to that podcast. It's a great podcast. So I thought about leaving on and off from the time my daughter was maybe four. And I was concerned about my daughter's safety. If we shared joint custody of her. And I felt like it was better for her if we stayed together than if she had to deal with him on her own. And I actually had a friend who was going through a different type of abuse that her husband was doing to her kids and she figured it out. And I watched her journey where at first she got custody and then she didn't. And it was so messy. And I was just thinking, I don't have proof of any of this. Who's going to believe me? He's absolutely going to get joint custody. How am I going to take care of her then? At least part of that, I imagine, came from the gaslighting and other things that he had been doing to, as you say, kill your self-esteem. Yes. Part of that probably came from a realistic understanding of what could happen. Yes. I've said that my daughter now, she hasn't forgiven me for staying with him Mm. for as long as I did and putting her through that. My daughter has a therapist and that therapist said that I wasn't wrong. Like she's seen that happen. So it's just a messy, I think it's just one of those situations where there's just no good answer. Yeah. And that's a lot of life. And maybe it's not that there's no good answer. It's just that no matter which path we choose, there are negative things on that path. Sure. There's no perfect path. And and sometimes it's a lot worse than others. Agreed. And it goes back to the reading at the beginning from a recovery standpoint. When I can identify unacceptable behavior as I see it, right? The analogy that I use now is I'm walking down a path and unacceptable behavior is like a little hole in the path. In the past, I was looking inward. I was so wrapped up in my thoughts. I wasn't looking at the path. I wouldn't see the holes. I would trip right into them and get upset about the fact that I tripped into them. Mm. But having a boundary is looking outward and looking upward at my higher power, which I love that phrase. It's uh, used by someone in one of my home meetings. I can pay attention and see that there's a hole coming up on the road and say, look, there's some unacceptable behavior. I'm going to set my boundaries and I'm going to go around it. I'm not going to fall in the hole. Yeah, that makes sense. When you can, when you have the clarity to see it coming. For sure. Yes. And I did not have that Yeah, I was not there yet at this point. So I guess the last part of this description is he never hit me. He never pushed me. The closest things he ever got to physical violence was that fist that got put an inch from my face. And one time he was very angry and he walked up close to me in a threatening way and his fists were clenched. 
And then he stormed away. That was definitely a threat. There were a lot of times when it was very scary and it was very implied. But I think that's important to say because, again, like domestic violence, I'm not getting hit, so it's okay. But that's not the case. Yeah, I have seen that in people who are close to me. There was nothing physical, but the emotional effects were really strong. Mm -hmm. Uh, One person, it was years uh, before this person could even talk about it. I can relate. Yeah. And that's part of the, it, it tends to be very private and it just adds to the complexity of identifying that there's an issue in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Like you say, I think it's important to to talk about it because I'm sure that, you know, there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast and I'm pretty confident that somebody who's listening right now may recognize something that's happening in their life that they hadn't seen before because you were able to describe what happened to you. That's how I learned a whole lot in this program was people talking about their own situation and being able to say, oh, that happened. I didn't even recognize it at the time. Right. Or that's happening. And now I can see it. That is where a significant amount of the power of these recovery programs comes from is people sharing their own experience so that you or I or somebody else can identify and see a little more clearly what's happening in my own life or or their own life. Yeah. The last couple's therapist that we had she did recognize my husband's rage as a concern. And she gave me the direction to leave the house when he got angry. And she said in front of him too, that can lead to violence in the home. If I stay, I remember having the conversation with her, with with all three of us, with my husband there too. If I just go in a different area and I can't hear him. And she said, no, don't do that. You need to leave. You need to get your daughter and you need to leave. And so that's what I did. And there were times when I would stay in a hotel overnight if it was late. And I would say, what if it's late? What if she's asleep? And she would say, if there's a lot of rage going on, wake her up and leave the house. That leads to having bags ready in the car, being prepared to go somewhere else. And is he going to try to follow me? That's like a whole other aspect to it. So what did happen? You did decide to leave. How did that come about so that that fist in my face ripped the denial away I reached out to a professional and asked am I in an abusive relationship that professional did recommend an author whose name is Patricia Evans and this was like probably seven or eight years ago at this point so still way before my Al-Anon journey I read all of so and looking on Amazon recently there's a lot more books but she's still around and she has a website and I do recommend her books they're really good it helped me a lot so it helped me start to begin what was going on and really validate that yes this is abusive and it's not okay so I followed her recommendation and I wrote an agreement which is basically a contract that I presented to my husband in the way that she described to go through it in the books. We both signed it. It listed the things that needed to change in order for me to stay in the marriage. And that included anger management counseling, which he did participate in for a few years. But it's in that cycle of good, bad, good, bad. It was really, how do you know? And one of the things that, that, that I've read is that, so in domestic violence, 25% of the time, the like aggressor is a woman. 
as a spouse. And 75% of the time, it's the man. Only about 25% of the time, the person is able to or chooses to recover Mm. and actually get better. So 75% of the time, it doesn't get better, according to her and the sources that I read. Like that just leads to, okay, (laughs) is he getting better? Is he not getting better? Is he getting... So for years, I was like, stay, leave, go, don't go. And just in my head and physically there the whole time. So part of that process when did the agreement and I started turning the focus on myself slowly before Al-Anon, but okay, what do I need to take care of? I need to get a job. I need to be self-sufficient. I need to learn about in the situation that I'm in, how can I keep myself safe? How can I prepare to leave if that's what I end up choosing to do? And actually, there was a time where, you know, when I did decide to leave, it was really scary. And I would wait until he was asleep or passed out, whatever the case was. And then I would gather or make copies of important documents that I needed. And that was like part of what I read in the research. And that's really important. And that doesn't always happen when women leave a situation like this. So like financial records statements, especially social security cards and birth certificates of of yourself as well as your children and like college degree copies, those kinds of things. You can't trust that person's going to take care of your information. Yeah. Part of the preparation. I know that you have put some links in our notes here and you're given a lot of really good information right now. And I want to make sure that I'm going to be able to put a link at least one link in the notes on uh, the recovery show episode 356 that somebody who's, Oh, I heard this stuff and I don't remember exactly what she said. And where can I go look this up? So we are at this point where you left. Now what happens during this whole process? My husband's company happened to announce that they were changing. They were moving out of state. So that really put like a time clock on the whole thing. That was as I was reading about learning about where I was. So it was after the author was recommended to me. So that definitely increased the volume of the flip-flopping in my head. And he was going to anger management. So is he getting better? Is he not? Is he getting better? Is he not? And then also, am I really going to move out of state? Leave this network of friends that I've built, that I've worked hard to keep and make myself more vulnerable, really, and put my daughter in a more vulnerable position position. When she realized that we may move, she became depressed. She started cutting, actually. So I took her to a therapist. And it was then that therapist recommended Al-Anon to me. So that's where my Al-Anon journey kicked in. And it took me like a month. Of course. Courage to go. I did start going to Al-Anon then. And it was literally three weeks before our move date. I finally made a decision and I got an apartment and I told my husband that our daughter and I were going to stay behind. And I lied to him and I said that it was because of her depression and I just didn't want to rip her out of school and that she needed help. She was diagnosed with severe depression. She was on medication. And at that time, I did not realize the extent of her depression on literally on the day that we moved out of our family home, my 13 year old daughter attempted suicide Mm. in the hotel room that we were all sharing. And I was the one who interrupted her suicide attempt in the hotel room. And that was really terrifying. Yes. Yeah. I will never, ever get that picture out of my head. 
but you know what? I really believe that was also like all of our higher power, really, because my husband had been minimizing her depression. And you certainly cannot minimize it when your daughter is attempting suicide and you're right there. So he was in that hotel room and I walked in first and then I was screaming, of course, and like trying to fix her. And he came in too and he was helping. There's another time where the denial is totally ripped away. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. After that, my daughter was hospitalized for 11 days. Then she was in residential treatment for a month. This was like for depression and and suicidal tendencies. And she was continued in recovery for several more months. Yeah. So where are you now? Emotionally, Uh, physically? Let me read the safety part because that's important for people. So still to this day, it continues to be true. One of the scariest parts of domestic violence is the high risk of murder to the spouse when they attempt to leave or when the break is becoming official. It's still on my mind because our divorce is not final. It's getting closer to being final. And it's sad to say that it's lucky for me that his mom is having some serious health issues, which is really distracting him from us and pulling his attention on other things. I want to say to anyone listening who's in a similar situation to please make sure that you stay safe. If your intuition is screaming at you, chances are it's right and you should listen to it. If your spouse is watching your movements and checking your computer activity and phone, you can use the Google incognito browser on your phone or computer to look up resources online. And in the show notes, there's a reference for how to do that. Thanks. Yeah, that's so important. We should put that up at the front and in the middle and at the end. Because, yeah. Even in the town that I live in, a few years ago, and this was probably like a year after we separated, maybe less. A spouse murdered a woman, his trying to be ex-wife, he walked into a store and shot her and killed her and tried to kill himself, but he didn't, he wasn't successful. Talk about close to home. It doesn't just happen on TV and in the movies. Yeah. One thing that really helped me once I had the realization that I was in an abusive relationship and just the fact that I had reached out to professionals who didn't have the awareness and didn't have the understanding of what I was going through. From that point on, I made sure that every professional that I reached out to had experience in domestic violence. Mm. Some research on my part, like I would Google them, Google their background and find and do a search for domestic violence, that phrase or emotional abuse or something like that. And if I didn't see it, I wouldn't go any further. And so in that way, I was able to surround myself with professionals who did understand, who I felt validated from, who could help me remove the layers of craziness and get down to the root. So that included my daughter's therapist, my lawyer, my therapist, things like that. Yeah. Okay. That That is excellent. And I don't know that I would have thought of the lawyer, for example. So now recovery. Recovery. Woohoo. <laughs> the good part. Yeah. The hopeful part. Yes. I grew up as the parentized kid, taking care of my mom and my younger siblings. My self-worth came from my mom's validation and approval of me when I did the things that she wanted me to do. That behavior was a survival skill that kept me safe as a kid. I knew the rules, right, to be my mom's hero, and I did that well, and I got a lot of validation from that. When I married my second husband, the rules all changed. He continued to move the bar for what was expected of me 
and then express his disappointment of me because I hadn't done this new thing that he hadn't told me about yet. What are the rules? They kept changing. And I remember that's an example that I use for every single couples therapist and no one understood what I was talking about. I would say this to my husband as well. Like he keeps moving the bar. It's never the same, but I wasn't saying it right. People didn't understand. I don't know. It, it ne- I was never able to say it in a way or. I get it when you're saying it now. And, and that's good. I don't know if that's because you're saying it differently <laughs> or because yeah. I have all this context that I've heard from you right now, but, but I get it. It's a classic control technique. Keep you off balance. You never quite measure up. So you got to try harder, right? Yeah. And especially when you layer that external validation of myself on him, I never got it. And that's not his fault. He didn't ask me to do that. That was me. That's, I brought that to our marriage and that is in my hula hoop and I can fix that. I can address that in a healthy way. And I knew something was seriously wrong for a long time, but I didn't understand at all what it was. I kept trying. It was like being in a maze, just wandering around a maze and trying to find the answer. And I just kept hitting walls. During that time, I definitely used the four M's. I learned that from childhood. So mothering, manipulation, managing, and martyr. And I know you have a show on that. So I used manipulation. I knew that some of what was going on was not okay. I tried to do things that would result in changing his behavior. I did believe that I had the power to change others' behavior. I believed I could change his behavior. I wasn't in recovery at that time. I definitely had a victim mindset. I was very self-righteous. How can he do these things to me? As a martyr, I had the cross to bear to have to deal with this mean husband. And managing and mothering, I was often telling him what he could do to have a better relationship with his daughter or so helpfully improve many aspects of his life. So I learned that I can ask for help. And I never, ever did this other than like professionals. Actually, I shouldn't say that. So I I did ask professionals for help and they didn't have the answer. But I never (laughs) asked for police for help. I never asked for help during the violence. And now I know that I can ask for help. If there's a scary situation, I can call the police. Like they're there for a reason. I can consider getting a restraining order, which I never did. It's not shameful. And other people's actions are outside of my control and outside of my hula hoop. And I need to hand it over and I need to keep myself. Another recovery tool. Yeah, for sure. So where are you now? So now, four years of Al-Anon, when I notice myself caring what others think, I repeat that mantra, I define my own self-worth. And I've heard in the rooms that it's important not to internalize negative comments. And it's also important to have the same approach for compliments in the same way. And I found that's true. So I can say thank you to compliments. But if I catch myself replaying a compliment in my head, Because I had that validation outside myself, and that's a pattern that I grew up with, I'm really conscious of, I define my own self-worth, whether that's good or bad. I'm the one who gets to give myself compliments, and that's where that value needs to come from, not from other people. So I hand over both negative and positive comments to my higher power, and I look to myself to define my own value and my own self-worth. And I use the steps to figure out what am I good at? What can I continue to improve at? I am reminded, there's a reading in one of our books that 
changed from one edition of the book to another. And it used to say something like, and most importantly, her friends and family think well of her now. And that's not the exact wording. In the later edition, it says, and most importantly, she thinks well of herself now. That's so much more important to to put it that way. I highlighted, I define my own self-worth. And what you said about compliments, I hadn't really thought about that, but if I take a compliment and use that to say to myself, this person thinks thus and such about you. Isn't that awesome? I'm actually undermining my self-esteem. I'm undermining my self-worth, and I'm giving that, that power to somebody else. I'm learning so much today. It's a journey. <laughs> it is a journey. Yeah. Yes. And another thing that I think you have said here you learned is everything's a choice. And that is so important for me to remember. So if someone makes a mean comment to me, or I see unacceptable behavior coming my way, I have choices every single time. I can choose to let other people's words have power over me and define my own self-worth, or I can choose to let it go, hand it over to my higher power for however long and however many times it takes before serenity returns. And that tape of someone's words leaves my head. Every time someone's comment pops in my head, I close my eyes and I think, universe God, that's what I use, (laughs) my own higher power. I'm handing this over to you. Please take this from me. Sometimes I have to say that 10 times a day, but it works. I like that one too. You talked earlier about boundaries because that is a really, I think, powerful tool. For sure. Yeah. I can choose to define a boundary to protect myself and keep myself safe and take care of myself. And I can make the conscious choice to accept and embrace that I have value. And that took me a while. And protecting myself is 100% worth my efforts and my energy and my time. That one took me a while, too. Because, for example, as a father, I felt that I had to put some large portion of myself into protecting my children. But I also have to protect myself because if I don't, I can't protect them. And that's... Another one of those balances, but right. 100% worth. Yes, you're not saying 100% of your efforts and energy, but it is 100% worth. Yes, I get. I totally agree with that. And so I can make the conscious choice to put myself on top of my own list of people to value. I can be a great mother to myself. And then we come back around to part of the disease being perception. And I think If I just go back and listen to the story again, it was a whole bunch of perception or not perception. Altered perception, maybe that's the way to put it. Um, There was a lot of altered perception happening there. Yeah. Yeah. And also, so it was that circus fun mirror thing. Yes. Definitely the adjustment of the perception. But also because I hadn't, found Al-Anon at that time, I didn't have the skill set to remove those glasses of those survival skills that kept me safe as a kid. But the victim, the martyr, that perception still exists in my head. And I have to pay attention to those patterns. But Al-Anon and the steps gave you some tools to have that awareness. For sure. To see, to start to be able to see where your perception is skewed. Yes. Where it's distorted. Yes. 
Yeah. I catch those old patterns popping up in my head, but Al-Anon gives me the tools to recognize those and to say, just, I see it as like a thread that's Mm -hmm. going on in my head and I can just pick up the Al-Anon scissors and cut. Nope. We're not doing that snip. We're going back to the healthy way. And I've accepted that I will always need my Al-Anon tools to help with my disease of perception to adjust that focus away from insanity and towards the direction of health and serenity. To me, it's like putting on a pair of glasses. Putting your Al-Anon glasses, huh? Yeah. (laughs) And what are those glasses? What makes up those glasses for you? I would say gratitude is really important. So I actually threw a gratitude list in my head nightly. And I think there's a podcast about that. There's been a few over the years, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say compassion for myself is an important mm -hmm. tool to understand that it's progress, not perfection. It's not helpful for me to measure my own recovery against the perfect recovery, especially at my fourth year anniversary, when I think about where I was when I started and where I am now, it's huge. Those patterns that I learned as a child, they're hardwired into my head. They're not going away. And I can use the Al-Anon glasses, the tools to have awareness, to accept that they exist, and then to take action and Choose recovery. Yes. How do the the tools, the principles that you've gathered in in your four years in, in Al-Anon help you with not accepting unacceptable behavior? I get to practice those skills with my teenage daughter, who's now 17. At times, she'll push my buttons, which is part of her job as a teenager. Yeah. No question. And that's good for me. It's good for me to practice. So I have the choice, right? Choice is a tool to pause another tool and recognize the behavior for what it is, which is she's just being a teenager and to adjust my response to be neutral, which there's a podcast on that too. Oh, wow. You might be right. I'll have to think about that. That's interesting. I'll get back to you. (laughs) I've listened to that podcast several times. I have to tell Eric that was his idea. Yeah, that's a great one. So on a good day, I can say to her when she does things that are unacceptable, and I actually say this out loud, I do not accept unacceptable behavior from anyone, and that includes you. And I leave the room. Other days, I start to slip into old behaviors and engage with her, but every moment is a choice. When I catch myself going down that path, I can pause right in the middle of it. One moment at a time, I can change. I can say, give me a moment. I'm going to adjust now. Even if I catch myself going down that path. Yeah, I know I've talked about this with regards to step seven of humbly asked our higher power to remove our shortcomings. That often for me, there's a process of recognizing the behavior after it happens. And saying, oh, darn, I did it again. Recognizing the behavior as it's happening. Mm -hmm. And like you say, maybe you can cut it off and stop and pause. And eventually, most of the time, because progress is not perfection, most of the time I get to a place where I can recognize that I'm about to engage a behavior and actually not do it. Or, yeah, do a different behavior, do a new behavior. So that's what I hear in that description. For sure. Yeah. And sometimes with my daughter, I will say through gritted teeth, 
you might be right, <laughs> but it still works. <laughs> Even if I have to grit my teeth to say it. <laughs> yeah. So one example of a win for me for, for unacceptable behavior is that my teenager tried to gaslight me. She has definitely learned well to be the victim and she learned, learned honestly to try to make me feel sorry for her so that she can get what she wants. And she was trying to talk me into buying something for her. And she was telling me that she had such a bad week and saying that she had told me about these bad dreams that she had and that my memory was so bad that how could I forget that she had already told me that was a good day. And I saw her actions as our family disease. I responded with a neutral comment. I'm sorry to hear that you had those nightmares. Those sound scary. I don't remember you telling me about them, but maybe you're right. And then I didn't buy the thing that she wanted. And that was the end of it. It went away. Yeah. So for that particular day, I had my Al-Anon tool belt close by and I was able to quickly pick up those helpful tools and they worked really well. That's great. Another tool that I think we have talked about is awareness, this awareness mm-hmm. of what's happening in me. Awareness of what's happening around me, awareness of what a situation is about. How does that work for you here? Yeah, so for me, it's definitely paying attention, as you said, paying attention to what's going on, what are my feelings about things, what's going on, and staying connected to that, staying connected to my higher power to get help to look outside, to get out of my head and to look outside of myself and keep my higher power as my guide to notice unacceptable behavior as it's happening, as it's just starting to happen and not accept it. And actually, and I'm excited about this. I'm going through step four. So after my step four is done, we're going to be working on my awareness of how toxic people tend to act. So when I'm around those kind of behaviors, I can make sure that I have the appropriate boundaries prepared and ready. Mm. Yeah, having your boundaries, knowing where they are before you go into a situation makes it a lot easier for me to uh, actually enforce them. Yeah, and I need practice with that. Because otherwise, what can happen is something goes past where I would have set the boundary, and then I'm like, wait, I had a boundary, and I have to try to pull it back or react instead of... Um, being prepared. I can relate. And along with awareness, awareness of yourself. For sure. Yeah. Staying connected with myself. For me at this moment in time, that looks asking myself, what do I want to do with each day, with this day? Not what does my daughter want to do or not what do other people want to do, but what do I want to do? Because my time is valuable. What do I want to do with my life? What is important to me? Not necessarily everyone else, because I was definitely raised to pay attention to everybody else but myself. My connection to my own voice and my own kind of goals is a lot more consistent than it used to be. And that connection is spiritual to me. I can ask my higher power to help me stay connected to myself. I want to end this part of things by saying, to people who are listening, that if you or someone you know may be in an abusive relationship, there's lots of information and tests online to try to make sense of what's going on. So please check out the show notes for links, or you can just Google them. I've heard from professionals in the field that the biggest indicator that abuse is occurring is a person's intuition. So there you go. I knew for a long time. I just didn't know that I knew. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing 
so deeply. I, I don't know, but I do know that you will have spoken directly to some of the people who are listening to the podcast right now, right now in the future. Yeah. I did get some shares back. I sent out a note to the email list where I uh, will ask for shares on upcoming topics. And I did get three letters back. Sometimes we can work those into the arc of our discussion. That didn't feel like it was going to work today. So sure. I'm going to read them now. Louise writes, Dear Spencer and fellow listeners, I read your email regarding this show, and to be honest, it was triggering for me, so I had to close it and let it go for a while, as I'm still recovering from a recent alcoholic episode in my home. A few hours later, I reopened it and felt, I actually think I can contribute on some level. I hope someone finds this helpful in some small way. Today, I am living with active alcoholism that can raise its ugly head at any given moment. I realize, as someone who grew up in a very dysfunctional, unpredictable home, that any current incident can take me back to that place in my head where, as a child, I felt very powerless, small, and unsafe. This past weekend, there was an incident in my home where I experienced that exact thing and had that awful, gripping anxiety in the pit of my stomach, and fear had its awful hold on me once again. My eldest son and his wife, who live with me due to the COVID situation, had gotten into a awful fight, and they both had been drinking the hard stuff. Neither of them have program, and they haven't been yet blessed with the gift of desperation, and are both in their respective disease. So anyway, as this ugly incident started at 2.30 a.m., jolted me out of a deep, restful sleep, and wasn't going to end well eventually, after praying desperately for clear direction, the message I got, loud and clear, was to take the next indicated step, which was for me to remove myself from my home, for my own mental peace of mind. I learned here not to prevent a crisis if it's in the natural course of events for it to happen. I had no idea if the neighbors had called the police, and I knew my daughter-in-law is a big girl, and she too can call them. It wasn't my job to get in the middle of their marital issues. As soon as I drove away with my little dog, my whole being started to relax, as I knew I had done the right thing, which was to practice some self-care and to apply the oxygen mask to myself. Your show was my driving companion at 5 a.m. as I headed out to my other house an hour and a half away where my retired husband lives full-time. So thankful for choices and options today. Without some tools of recovery and resources in my life today, I honestly think I would be a total and complete nervous wreck, and I too, just like my mother, would probably turn to alcohol and tranquilizers to quiet my own nerves. My mother grew up in a very violent home, so she picked up that behavior and would lie in bed at night as a child, fantasizing about killing her own father, whom she loved, just so the family would live in peace. She knew she would go to jail, but the rest of the family would be okay. This was one of the many horror stories I grew up hearing again and again, coupled with my own mother's explosive temper, which was her learned behavior. I'm so grateful for the program, which helps me separate the person from the disease and the lifelong effects of growing up in chaos and dysfunction. Slogans are a lifesaver for me, especially when in crisis mode. This too shall pass, and easy does it, helps so much. Choosing faith over fear and using the phone, podcasts, meetings, self-care are all so critical to my well-being. It takes a few days for my mind to relax from being in hypervigilant mode after a blow-up, and I have to work my program extra hard not to let the chaos continue inside my head. My head is a dangerous place, and I know I ought not to go there alone. 
One of the good things that came out of the recent alcoholic episode is it showed me that I need to do some deeper ACA work. Al-Anon has been my main program for over five years, and I just began a journey in OA also as I realized I was eating instead of feeling my feelings. Once that substance was removed, the good news is I dropped over 20 pounds very quickly, but my feelings became very raw. So the ACA program is such a blessing in my life, and I'm beyond thankful for all these different 12-step programs. Peace and blessings to you from Louise in California. One of the things I hear here is that the effects of violence can last for just a really long time, and that there is so much gratitude for these programs that can help us to reduce the way in which those effects continue to live in us. And thanks, thanks for writing, Louise. I think that Louise's choice to leave the house when violence and raging was going on was a really good choice. She focused on her own safety, and that was in her hula hoop. I think that's an important tool to share. One which you used a few times in, yes. in your story. Yeah. You want to read this share from Deborah? Sure. Deborah writes, unacceptable behavior. This is a very interesting topic. I have heard many people share about emotional and physical abuse they have suffered as a result of alcoholism in their homes. For years, I was grateful that my loved ones were not physically abusive to me. For the most part, my father was a happy, functional alcoholic. My sister was the same. My husband as well. And my son was not violent toward me, although as a teen, there was certainly a wall punched once and often yelling, me yelling at him most often. So that is my in-denial version of no domestic violence, my pre-Alanon version. As I have peeled back the protection of denial, I realized there was terrible emotional abuse and unacceptable behavior in most of my relationships with alcoholics. My father was a loud, yelling, angry man toward my mother every Friday night of our lives. I called the local police often to make him stop as I cowered in my room. Nope, no unacceptable behavior there. My sister was a blackout drunk teen who wrecked our cars, got arrested, had physical fights with boyfriends and girlfriends and our mother and suicide attempts. Nope, no unacceptable behavior there. My husband, when we were dating, was frequently in violent bar fights and arrested. Of course, I believed I could change him and the bar fights and arrests did stop. He was simply the happy drunk on my couch. Nope, no unacceptable behavior there. Long story short, I had blocked out all the frightening, anxiety-creating experiences I had lived with for my entire life. At 57, I began my recovery journey. It took years for me to uncover and face the damage that had been done and the resulting character defects I had cultivated. I will spend more years forever asking God to remove those shortcomings. As a result of working my Al-Anon program, I am in such a better place. I have healthy boundaries that keep any unacceptable behavior of my loved ones away from me. I chose to surround myself with well-behaved, kind, loving friends. My heart breaks for those who are living with violence and or emotional abuse. My heart also breaks for the terrified little girl I was trying to save my mother or rescue my sister. The healing is in the rooms, literature, and loving people in Al-Anon. Thank you, Deborah. I did an episode with Deborah a little while back. If you want to hear her story more completely, 
I'll put a link in the show notes. Gina wrote, also, important topic. Thank you, Kathy, for bringing it up. My ex-husband would often yell or threaten me verbally and emotionally. In time, I have learned some of this was even more traumatic for me than the physical contact. I think it is a misconception that domestic violence is only physical, but I'm learning my trauma is sometimes deeper from being on the other side of rage, glaring, yelling, pounding fists due to my minimization and shame that it wasn't that bad or that I was to blame for upsetting him. That sounds real familiar. He used to say, I bruised easily and that I had to accept that I was sensitive, that shame and denial took a lot of healing. I now know so much of my experience back then was unacceptable, but I did not have the tools or program to support me as I do now. An experience that happened to me years ago was later talked about by authorities and medical professionals as an attempted sexual assault. She put that in quotes. However, simply because my attacker was not successful in the assault, it was sexual assault. It was still traumatic. This was something I uncovered during therapy when I was coming out of denial. Simply our use of attempted sexual assault versus sexual assault shows avoidance in communicating clearly about it. What would you say is an attempted assault? And just if you take the word sexual out of that, like somebody swings at me and misses, is that an attempted assault? They have to actually hit me? I Yeah, that, because you got away, that makes it okay. It wasn't an assault? Wait. Let's totally ignore the emotional damage and the fear and the the adrenaline and all that. Okay, going back to Gina's letter. One book that was groundbreaking for me was Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving by Pete Walker. Okay, we'll put a link to that in the notes. It talked about the four F's, flight, fight, freeze, and fawn means codependency. It helped me uncover a lot of my denial around my responses to unacceptable behavior and domestic violence. It has helped me identify how I sometimes go into one of these responses even now when I am not in danger. I can get activated simply by a gesture, sound, or facial expression that reminds me of the domestic violence. In the past, I could not protect myself against unacceptable behavior, but the triggers left over from those experiences then made it difficult for me to see the difference between unacceptable and acceptable behavior later in life. I would sometimes get activated by acceptable, non-dangerous situations, while on the other hand, there would be times where I let things be unmanageable or unacceptable for much longer than was healthy. Unpacking my own experience and lingering responses to that domestic violence through 12 steps, Al-Anon, CODA, and ACA, as well as therapy and other outside resources like somatic experience and CPTSD books like Trauma and the 12 Steps, has been healing for me. In terms of what recovery looks like today, it is important for me to practice self-compassion and gentleness with myself as I heal from these automatic trauma responses, learning about boundaries, trusting my own body and feelings, and using those to inform my choices is a daily practice. Gina sent a PS from the book, Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. It helped me release shame about why I didn't do more to get out of my abusive domestic violence situation or seek help sooner. There were times I could not get out of bed, leave the house, or struggled to even imagine a way out of the relationship. It wasn't until I had the support of Al-Anon as well as friends and family to actually have the strength to leave. The book was normalizing, validating, and enlightening for me as it scientifically explained what had happened to me while I was in chronic fawn and freeze shutdown, unable to see choices and hope. Hope, however, other possibilities exist. I hope that someone listening in an abusive relationship 
Here's that life doesn't have to be that hard, and it can get better with support. I also want to voice this for someone who was in an abusive relationship a long time ago and maybe thinks it's done, it's in the past, or hasn't had the time or space to even think about those skeletons in the closet. I have found that even after therapy, I was holding onto survival mechanisms that continued to impact me on a daily basis. By looking at the past through the 12 steps and with CPTSD, I was able to move through it. Now I'm learning a lighter way to live. It is possible through this work. You're in the right place. Take what you like and leave the rest until it feels right for you. Thanks, Gina. Thanks for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. I can talk about concepts till I'm blue in the face and it just does not have the strength and the impact that it has coming from your experience. So thank you. And thank you, Kathy, for the same. And now we're at the point where you picked some music. So the first song is from Dua Lipa. It's called New Rules. And this song is fun and serious at the same time. And it reminds me that I need to pay attention to my boundaries, which is not a natural reaction of mine. So some of the lyrics, I keep pushing forwards, but he keeps pulling me backwards. Nowhere to turn, no way. Nowhere to turn, no. Now I'm standing back from it. I finally see the pattern. I never learn. I never learn. I got new rules. I count them. I got to tell them to myself. One, don't pick up the phone. He's only calling because he's drunk and alone. Two, don't let him in. You'll have to kick him out again. Three, don't be his friend. I still use that one. Don't be his friend. (laughs) You're going to wake up in his bed in the morning. And if you're under him, you ain't getting over him. We can leave that last part out if you would. (laughs) I think there is so much double, triple meaning in that last line. Yes, for sure. Yes. have we experienced recovery this week or as I like to say sometimes how have I practiced these principles in all my affairs one of the meetings that I attend is Saturday mornings and the subject this this morning was how do I find peace in my own program which was led from someone who's been in the program for about 30 years and she was talking about the perspective of her time in recovery and some of the things that were mentioned during the meeting were you know managing the catastrophizing in my head which I can definitely relate to Alanon tools helped me recognize the old patterns of my thoughts that used to help me survive but now are not good for me recovery is a muscle that needs to be worked i need to stay in my own hula hoop and detach with love put the focus back on myself and be in awareness and acceptance and being able to see what is important to me so that I can set my boundaries and communicate that to others. And another, my home meeting, the topic was my recovery this year. So my thoughts for that was that I've, especially at my four-year birthday, so um, not accepting unacceptable behavior, um, accepting and feeling my feelings. Understanding that I'll define my self-worth in my mantra, I define my own self-worth. It does not come from anyone else. I can see my patterns of old thinking and reframe them and my relationship with my higher power, which when I started Al-Anon, I had uh, that G-O-D word. I did not like it. It made me really uncomfortable. Surprisingly, it is one of the pillars, important pillars of my recovery, for sure. And giving up the victim and martyr habits that I had from childhood. Okay. So I think it was maybe even a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure it was actually because my Saturday morning 
meeting on the first Saturday of the month, one of the tables works out of the Blueprint for Progress four-step inventory book. We were talking about communication. What have I learned about how I communicate, etc., by doing this inventory? One of my friends said, I actually have found all these Zoom meetings to be helpful to me in this way. I mute myself so that when I'm about to say something, I have to first go unmute myself. And often that's enough of a pause for me to realize that this is not something that I need to say. And I thought, that is brilliant. Because I'm one of these people that will just, you know, pop off with a comment at, at, at any moment, as you probably noticed today. I, I really try hard not to do that when I'm, you know, but it, sometimes <laughs> yeah. I can't help myself. No. But uh, you know what? That that makes the podcast a dialogue. Yeah. It's nice. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Anyway, so I thought, I'm going to try this. Now, the thing that you have to know also is that I frequently have this problem of starting to talk when I'm supposed to be talking and I'm still muted. And so it, this is in work meetings mostly. And then people are like, hey, Spencer, you're muted, because we've all learned to do that now. Was it, it, wow, this is really, this is like an aside to the aside. But I was in a meeting one day, uh, the other day, and, and somebody was talking, and, and she had her cat on her lap. And then all of a sudden, she was muted, because <laughs> the cat had hit the, somehow it hit the mouse button and muted her or something. At least that was her excuse, and she was sticking to it. Anyway, so I was in a meeting yesterday. People were talking, and I was muted because I'm trying to practice this thing. And somebody said something, and I made an offhand flippant remark in response, except I was muted. Except somebody said, Spencer, you're muted, because they could see my mouth moving. (laughs) So then I had to unmute and explain this thing that I was doing. But I I didn't have to repeat my flippant remark. I still interrupted the flow of what was happening, but it it was a light a lighthearted moment, and people chuckled about it. But I think there's a bigger there's a bigger thing here for me, which is that sometimes these changes in my life that feel like an imposition, that feel like they're lessening things in in very real ways. A Zoom meeting is not an in person meeting, but sometimes there are positives that can come out of that. And and one of those positives is for me to be able to practice being more mindful about how I communicate. So that was my recovery insight this week. I've talked before about this suggested topic, which we're tentatively calling the effects of recovery. And I think the person who suggested it was also saying, we had the effects of the alcoholism and the effects of recovery and do they counteract each other? Do they balance? Does one take away the other? So what have you seen? What effects have you seen that recovery is having in your life? What effects have you experienced? How does this differ from the effects that alcoholism or addiction has had on your life? So we will welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation as Kathy did today, along with Louise and Deborah and Gina. On this question of what are the effects of recovery that you're seeing, how do you see them, etc. You can leave us a voicemail or send us an email. And Kathy, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795.
You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of unacceptable behavior and domestic violence, or any of our upcoming topics, including the effects of recovery. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so you too can contribute your voice to that topic, you can sign up for our emailing list by sending an email to feedback at the recovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Our website, therecovery.show, has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the books that we read from, the books and, and so on that we talked about, especially today, videos for the music, and there's also some links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. They haven't been updated in a while, but they're still good. We're going to take a short break before we... Look at what's in the mailbag. What's our second song? So our second song is No Roots by Alice Merton. This song speaks to growing up in dysfunction and the family disease. To me, it speaks to awareness of where my old patterns of response come from. So the lyrics are, I like digging holes and hiding things inside them. When I grow old, I hope I won't forget to find them. But I've got memories and travel like gypsies in the night. I've got no roots, but my home was never on the ground. Let's see what's in the mailbag this week. Tanya writes, Hello, my name is Tanya, and I grew up with an alcoholic father, had a sister who died of an accidental heroin overdose, and I'm now dealing with a 17-year-old son who is addicted to marijuana with mental health issues. I have found that, despite our best efforts, he has to come to the realization he needs help. We cannot want it more for him than he wants it for himself. That said, I've been told over and over again that I need to focus on my recovery, which led me to your podcast. I'm just starting my recovery journey and would like to know if you guys can suggest where to start. I've gone to numerous websites for meetings, but with COVID, it's unclear if they are currently being held in person or via Zoom. I get no response when I email the address listed. Can you point me in a direction to find a first-timer recovery meeting? I want to explore this option and put myself first, but feel that I'm spinning my wheels in the current environment. I responded to Tanya's email with some ideas of meetings that I'm familiar with, and also a friend of mine told me about a New York City meeting that uh, is specifically a newcomer's meeting meets, I think, once a week on Sundays on Zoom. So hopefully Tanya has found a meeting. Ellie left a comment on episode 104, which was titled Judgment. I love this episode. Here's a song that comes to mind when I think of Judgment. It's Judge Not by Bob Marley. And some lyrics here that she sent. Don't you look at me so smug and say I'm going bad. Who are you to judge me and the life that I live? I know that I'm not perfect and that I don't claim to be. So before you point your fingers, be sure your hands are clean. Judge not before you judge yourself. Judge not if you're not ready for judgment. Whoa, oh, Yeah. The boat of life is rocking, and you may stumble too, so while you talk about me, someone else is judging you. Chris left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. My name is Chris, and I just wanted to thank you for 
the podcast you gave us shortly after your father died, and my prayers go out to you. I really do appreciate that you took the time away to speak your feelings, tell us your thoughts, and let us grieve with you. Thank you so much. It really does help the healing for me, too. And thank you. Thank you for that, Chris. I think that episode, that sharing was part of my healing process as well. So thanks. This may be from the same Chris. We have an email. I'm pausing the most recent episode to express my gratitude for your perseverance and commitment to the podcast following your father's death. Some would quit to give themselves space to heal or be alone in the grief. You've chosen to share with all your listeners your grieving process, which has helped beyond measure. This is practicing the steps and traditions in all our affairs. I wasn't paralyzed emotionally when my father died as I expected I would be. Conversely, it was mother's death that had me off my feet and in a spiral of grief that I never imagined. I worshipped my father, not my mother. We mended fences before she died of Alzheimer's disease. I thought I would feel free. As I wrote, I didn't. But now I recognize that the emotional breakdown was a breakthrough when I had to face grief and do so without shame. It remains the hardest gift I received, the loss of shame, the loss of protecting the status quo, and accepting I must now love, protect, and honor myself as I'd never done before. I'm still grieving, and I'm still learning. My higher power, whom I call God, gives me all the tools I need to grow and be healthy through the program, Fellowship, and Grace. Thanks for keeping up the message of hope. Sincerely, Chris. And thank you so much, Chris. That's beautiful. And yeah, I must now love, protect, and honor myself as I've never done before. Mm, Thanks. Brittany called us with a couple of music suggestions. Hi, Spencer. This is Brittany. I'm calling because I had a couple of music suggestions. I was just in an ACA meeting, which is my fellowship. And they suggested a couple of songs. There's one by Sia called Miracle. And one of the lyrics is, I don't want to quit before the miracle. And I could just hear your voice saying that. So I thought I needed to share that one with you. There's also another one by Everclear called Everything to Everyone. I'm not sure if you have mentioned it before, but it's a really good recovery song. This is actually my first time calling. I have gotten so much out of your podcast, and I'm just really grateful. You are doing great work. So thank you so much for all that you do. And to everybody who, as a guest host, I really love when you guys get together, you and Eric, and all your uh, parables and just good stuff. So thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Brittany. I've taken note of those suggestions, and they will probably appear in a future episode. Lisa wrote, Hi, Spencer. I began my Al-Anon journey during COVID on May 2nd, 2020. Can't imagine what life would have been without it. I originally came to the room for my husband's alcoholism, but quickly learned there are more people in my life whose struggles with addiction affect me, beginning with my mother's heroin addiction. Though she died almost 33 years ago, the program has helped unpack issues around all of that, and I'm so grateful. Thank you and your co-hosts for the beautiful selfless service. My sponsor recommended your podcast, and it is often a meeting between meetings and incredibly helpful and life-giving. I've been wanting to send condolences to you and your family for the loss of your dad. My heart hurt for you upon hearing of his passing. Big love to all of you and a heart. So glad to hear your energy is returning. That really resonated with me when you mentioned it on episode 355. I've been in a funk for quite some time and hating it, but also trying to let it go and trust it as just being the season of my life. 
This past year has been unlike any other, as we all know too well. I returned to the office Monday after working from home 13 months. Lots of anxiety has come up around all of that, but hey, one more opportunity to grow and work the program, right? And there's a smile face emoji. Again, thank you for all that you do. The Recovery Show is a lifeline. And Lisa asked to be subscribed to the email list, which I have done. Have an awesome day, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. You talk about season of your life, seasons of your life, and not a coincidence, I'm sure. I was just listening to a podcast where the host of of the podcast talked about how his life has had seasons. My life has also had seasons. I think that's a really good way of looking at it, that different things become important at different times in our life. Aaron says, thank you for your meditation on grief regarding the loss of your father. I'm going through a different kind of grief, divorce from my addicted loved one, and have been having a hard time with acceptance and feeling my feelings. I needed this. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Logan writes in response to episode 355, which we titled A Son's Addiction. Thank you for this episode. I've been struggling with my own son, 16, who is slowly sliding into addiction and mental health. And as a parent, it's hard to watch. I really appreciate your show in general, but this episode really helped me. I've been in Al-Anon for three years, but at the time it wasn't my son who started me in my recovery. But it has helped me handle his slide into addiction and mental health issues. Yeah. I want to say thanks to Jacob, who was most of that episode, for bringing his experience, strength, and hope to all of us. Thanks. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, Logan, for writing. Alina sent in shares about letting go and living in the moment. Hi, this is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 105, which was the topic was letting go of the process. I I guess for this uh, topic, I know there was a few questions about letting go of control and knowing that as part of our recovery, we can't really skip steps and do things our own way. I know sometimes I get stuck in my head. I think it's when I feel frustrated. I get stuck in my head. Why do I always have to be the one to pause and work things out and reason things out and talk to my sponsor? And why do I have to be the one? I don't know. I guess I throw a little tantrum mentally that my qualifiers and people in my life just can't stop acting the way they're acting, which frustrates me. I know that I need to not take things personal because that's one of my uh, character defects is like taking things personal and thinking that things are about me and they're not. It's really hard sometimes, especially when there's hurtful things said and words and accusations and people pointing out things about me. And I know that a lot of times it's not about me and they're going through something. One thing that helps me is I always try and make a list of my gratitudes and also realize that I've done a lot with my program. I've worked the steps. So, and I don't really want to push that aside and not think that doesn't count for something when it does. And I just have to remind myself, I know that my feelings are temporary and they're going to come and go. I just hate when I get stuck in that stupid thinking about why do I have to be the one to do my meetings, write about it, read about it, pray about it. When I just know that's just part of my life and it does help me. And I don't know why I sometimes get that way. I guess I just get frustrated. Letting go of the process does help. I just have to make a decision and go with it and not worry about the outcome. And so letting go of the process is definitely 
plays a big role in, in my recovery. One thing that my yoga teacher was reaffirming, and I know this, that your attitude plays a big role in your day-to-day life and what you can accomplish. I just can't stress about stuff that's going to happen or not happen in the future. And I did do that this week and it was extremely helpful and got rid of a lot of anxiety that I had about a certain work schedule that was going to happen. And I was worried we were going to be crunched for time and not have enough staff and things weren't going to go smoothly. And I just let it go. I just said, you know what, we'll see what happens. And actually things worked out fine. I think that if I had worried about it and obsessed about it for nothing, it would have been, it would have been for nothing. Thank you. I wanted to share on episode number 106. The topic was in the moment. I always like being reminded of being in the moment because sometimes it makes things a little more simple for me in my recovery rather than having to worry about the big picture and everything. If I can just like be in the moment and just be reminded that I can just do what I can right now at this moment and not have to obsess or consume myself with what I did in the past or what I need or should do in the future and just second guessing myself. But this topic comes clear to me in both my private life and my work life as well. As far as work goes, there's going to be some changes. And of course, I obsessed about it and ran with it and thought, oh, they don't think I'm doing a good job. They want to move me. They want to, it's like a demotion type of thing. But it, you know, really ended up all it was being was that they wanted me to be happy and they didn't want to lose me. And they wanted to give me the choice whether to stay at this facility or move to a different one. If I can just stay in the moment and if I would have just focused on now and what I'm doing and know that I'm doing the best that I can and I'm following a policy and procedure and not really try to get into the drama or the chaos of what other people are saying or thinking, I probably would have avoided a little bit. You know, I was grateful to have an Alan on a friend and my sponsor and writing about it and praying about it and you know, doing all these things to help me keep me centered and you know, continuing to do my readings and listening to podcasts and just like getting up and doing, doing what I can at that moment, not really worrying about what the list of things that I have to do, whether it be at work or my personal life with my qualifiers. Being in the moment does help when things aren't so good. When you know, my qualifier decides to drink or my other one, like I said, he relapsed and he's 30 days clean and sober now. And I think I got through it basically. I'm still sad and hurt by it. And it's hard to see someone that you care about go through that and to hear that they're not, you know, happy and that life sucks and stuff like that. And you just want to remind them there's things to be grateful for. And you can only say it a couple times because after that, it's just trying to be manipulative of their feelings. So I try not to do that. But I know for me that just this being in the moment and doing one thing at a time and focusing on that helped me get to where I am today. The past 30 days haven't been easy for anybody. But anyways, I do like the topic. I appreciate you letting me share and I hope that everyone's uh, happy and healthy. Thank you. Thanks, Selena. Our last song selection is Straight Jacket by Atlantis Morissette, which you can listen to at the recovery.show slash 356. This song is very powerful. She's really captured the experience I had inside domestic violence. 
So this shit's making me crazy. The way you nullify what's in my head. You say one thing, do another, and argue that's not what you did. The strings of my puppet are cut. The end of an era. Your discreditings lost my consent. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.